0: If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning, I'll be reading John 20, 11 through 18. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw. And saw Jesus standing there. She did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, "Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for?" Thinking he was the gardener, she said, "Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him." Jesus said to her, "Mary," and she turned around and and he she turned around. toward She turned. Sorry. <laughs> She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Ravani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Highland. It's good for us to be together. And if you're visiting today with friends or family or you just decided this is the Sunday to check out a church, man, we are so glad you are here. Uh, you're in for something special today because I am joined by the Maxwells who are going to co-preach with me this morning. I want to start with a, an Easter confession. Not the kind of confession where I, you know, put my dirty laundry out for everybody to see, but it's, it's what we believe. And this is the, what you've heard echoed throughout this service from the very beginning. We believe early one Sunday morning, just before dawn broke, the darkness of night, that Jesus rose with power. We believe that his resurrection canceled our debt and redeemed our sin. We believe that Jesus' resurrection is the victory over the powers, even the power of death. We believe that because Jesus left the grave, he set us free to live new lives, that we might let the singing never end. For he who was no more is forevermore. Amen. I was reading in this book this week, and it it made this interesting statement, and I've, I've wrestled with it. It's kind of stuck in the back of my mind. I want to share it with you, and I want you to chew on it too. I read this week that you shouldn't start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't need to begin with resurrection. The author said if if you're a new believer, don't start with the resurrection. Start in the Sermon on the Mount and, and start with the miracles. Start with the parables. Start with seeing how Jesus is compassionate. Start with seeing how Jesus confounds those that are trying to attack him. Start by seeing how he inspires others to do good work. But don't start with the resurrection. Starting with the resurrection can be overwhelming. And this may sound controversial, and so I wanted to to rest with you and sit with you, but I, I think I'm right. Believing in the resurrection is the fruit, not the source of your faith. The resurrection is the fruit, not the source of your faith. Okay, here's the thing. Imagine with me for a minute that, that you receive a letter in the mail and it's got the letterhead of, of some lawyer company and, and, it, and it looks legit, but it's from a different state. You've never heard of them before. And in the letter, they, they write you to tell you that a distant relative has died and has left you with millions of dollars. What would you think? What would you do? Well, in, in our world now... I think my first reaction was, to think like it's a scam. I mean, I've had enough Nigerian princes contact me that I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to just kind of dive, you know, both feet in on, on something like this. I mean, it's, it's like those, those phishing texts or emails that that, that pose to be somebody else. I, I get a text like once a month from somebody in this church that someone pretending to be me has said, hey, don't call me, don't text me, don't email me. But send me $200 in Amazon gift cards. If that ever happens, it's probably not me. I'm going to be straight with you right now. And so my, there's a part of me that says, okay, this is probably a scam. But it's also millions of dollars. So you might check it out. I mean, you might call the number on the letterhead and, or look them up on the Internet and see another phone number to call there. You might investigate it. Because even if it's a long shot, it's worth investigating So let's think for a minute about what a resurrection promises. Even if you feel a little skeptical this morning that that Jesus moved a stone and walked out of that grave. Think a minute about what resurrection promises, that you will gain a life that will never end. And you will be given a new body that will never stumble. And you're going to be given a new spirit and reordered passions so that you desire the good for everything in each circumstance you'll get to see loved ones again and the suffering in your life every hard thing that's ever happened to you will be glorified and redeemed but i think most importantly you will see and commune with god face to face if that is what resurrection is promising then it's it's worth investigating But we in this room are not novices. We don't have to begin in the Sermon on the Mount. There have been two ways in this season of Lent that we've been walking through this together. And and, and here on Sundays, we've been walking with Jesus through this season as we see Jesus healing the man born blind and caring for the Israelites when they were thirsty, standing with the crowd as he rides into Jerusalem. And we've been yelling at the top of our lungs, Hosanna. But you've also been practicing the presence of Jesus. Jesus each week or each day, putting on a, on a virtue reflected in Christ. And, and if you're, this is your first time here in a while, what we've been doing is we, we chose a virtue like joy, patience, mercy, kindness, generosity, compassion, humility, and we chose to put it in our bodies, and we chose to make it a habit so that we could somehow reflect Jesus to those around us. And I don't know about you, but, but for a moment, for a moment each week, we looked a little more like Jesus. We bore his image instead of our own. So let's, let's see what Jesus does in this text, this story of Mary Magdalene as she goes to the tomb. There's a little bit of backstory that you need to understand here. Uh, you have to realize that there is an incredible intimacy in the betrayal that Judas performs over the Passover. Jesus dips the bread and hands it to him and says, go and do what you're supposed to do. Everybody else thinks it's about maybe giving money to the poor or preparing for the rest of the Passover feast, but Jesus knows and Judas knows. The text tells us that the Satan enters him and he goes to betray. And then Judas comes back on, on the night when Jesus is praying in the garden And Judas doesn't have to do what he does, but he goes into the garden through the disciples and he kisses Jesus. He didn't even have to be there. Somebody else knew who Jesus was. He didn't even have to go next to Jesus. He could have just pointed to the one who was Jesus. But Judas goes and looks him dead in the eye, three inches from his face, puts his hands on Jesus' cheeks and gives him a kiss because he wants Jesus to know it was him. How can you do that? How can you look at the face of pure love and betray Him? Well, I know how you can do that because I've, I've done it. There was an intimacy in that betrayal. But this text centers around Mary Magdalene. We know from other parts of John it was Joseph of Arimathea who asks for Jesus' body, and he and Nicodemus who prepare the body for burial. You remember Nicodemus. He showed up in chapter 3. He comes to have a conversation with Jesus, and he goes in the night, and he speaks to Jesus covertly. And then Nicodemus kind of fades into the darkness as Jesus talks, and we haven't heard from him again. He's gone from the narrative until this moment. It's Joseph that speaks to Pilate to get Jesus' body, but it isn't Mary. Mary is at the foot of the cross along with John and some other women, and, but she doesn't ask Pilate. She can't. I mean, she's probably a person of some means. She's mentioned the same way Joseph is, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary of Magdalene. It was this fishing village on the Sea of Tiberias, and tradition believes that she was a weaver or a seller, a weaving merchant, and she has funded Jesus' ministry. She has some money, but even then, she doesn't have the clout to speak to to Pilate. But what she can do is go to the tomb as soon as she can. When she gets to the tomb, she finds the stone rolled away. And she runs back to get Peter and John. John gets there first, but Peter goes into the tomb, and, and the text says that Peter sees. And in the book of John, there's, there's two ways of talking about seeing. Like, one way is the simple way you can see a person coming down the road. But there's also the woman at the well, and she is in a deep theological conversation with Jesus, and she says, I see that you're a prophet. And that's not because Jesus is dressed up like Elijah. It's not because he has a name tag with the word prophet written on it. She can discern it. She can contemplate who it is. She figures it out. And when Peter runs into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths, they're separated and they're wrapped up, he's not just looking. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to understand what's going on. Because grave robbers, if they had come in to take the body, they would have taken the expensive spices that were still rolled up in those linen cloths. Which, in my mind, makes you want to be really careful about the spices you buy at the market the next week, right? But, but that, so that doesn't make sense. It's not grave robbers. Other disciples would have carried the cloth, taken the cloth, linen cloths with them, rather than carry him naked out of the tomb. Peter's trying to figure it out. He discerns, he wonders, and I think there's a part of him that he hopes, that he hopes. What the resurrected Jesus does is it orients us to the new life. It gives us new hope, and it gives us new purpose, and and those of us that have been engaging in these practices through the last season of Lent, I think we've experienced that. I got to tell a little bit of my own story last week about how I've engaged in the practice of kindness over the last six or eight weeks. And, and specifically, that kindness happens in my house from about 7.45 to 8.30. It's bedtime. And it is a time of chaos sometimes where I live. But I found that if I can put on Jesus, if I can embody kindness, that time goes better. And because it goes better, I I sleep better at the end of the night. And because I've slept better, it's made my whole day more meaningful. Mary, when she comes to the tomb and sees that Jesus is there, she is in such despair, she doesn't notice that they are angels sitting in the tomb. She doesn't care that they're angels. Every other time that an angel appears in the story of the Gospels or even in the entire Old Testament, the first thing that the angel has to say is, don't be afraid because they're terrifying. And Mary doesn't, they don't say that to Mary. They ask her why she's crying because she doesn't even notice what they are. And then she sees Jesus, but she doesn't realize it's Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. And and somehow she wonders, hey, did you take this body? Because are you a grave robber or a gardener? It's not clear. And what is she going to do with it when she asks for it back? Is she going to move it herself? It takes Jesus to say her name and the burden of her grief is released. Annie Dillard is a Pulitzer Prize author. She wrote, I have been my whole life a bell and I did not know it until I was lifted up and wrung. And I think in this moment, in this story, this is the, the, the part of Mary's life where she is lifted up and she's wrung and she's discovered who she was meant to be from the very beginning. There's kind of a lie in Western culture and it's a lie that we tell our children, it's a lie that we tell college students, that you can figure out your identity by looking deep inside of yourself that you can discover who you are by somehow ruminating on your own ideas. But you cannot find secure identity and, and by deciding who you are and then leaning into it. You can't find it that way. Humans aren't designed that way. Humans stride confidently. Children stride confidently. College students stride confidently and securely into who they are in safe and reliable communities of love. It only happens in healthy relationships. You cannot decide it for yourself and just choose that's the way you want to go. And it's when Mary is in that confident, safe relationship with her teacher, her rabbi, that her life changes. But in that resurrection moment there is conversion. Mary's holding on to an idea of Jesus that she she has to let go of. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's me. He doesn't explain what the resurrection means. He leaves it to Mary to go and tell the others and along the way to think and reflect and figure it out. What he's asking Mary to do is see the way that Peter saw. But she's not the only one that needs to see in the, the story of John. Thomas needs to see the scars. And it's not because he doubts. Remember, we talked about when he goes into, when they're going into Bethany to, 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 to heal Lazarus, he has a look of resolve on his face that says, let us go and die with him. The problem with Thomas is not doubt or, or commitment. He just needs to see it to understand. And when he has the chance to put his hand in his Lord's, or put his finger in his Lord's hand, he is set free to serve. According to the tradition, Thomas ends up in India. He goes east, 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 preaching the gospel. And for a long time, most scholars believed that that was just a story. It was just made up until they found archaeological evidence in the 19th and the 20th centuries. They found churches in India that had been there for 3rd to the 6th century. But Peter, he needs to be set free too. Peter needs to set free free from guilt. You can imagine that story on the beach when they've been fishing all night. The person says, hey, put your nets on the other side. Peter realizes it's Jesus, and he jumps into the water, and he swims to get there first, and he's coming up on the beach. He's coming as close as Judas came to Jesus, and he's looking him in the eye, and he realizes what he's done. He's betrayed his Lord once, twice, three times, but he can't live there. Peter needs to be set free from guilt. He needs to be set free from the shame. Nobody can effectively lead with guilt and shame. Nobody can effectively lead that way. It will drive you into secret self-medication. It will compromise your effectiveness. And for most of us, especially if you're Gen X growing up like I am, this is hard because you grew up in a place where guilt and shame are used to get you to do everything, right? It was behavioral management. I can give you a very clear example. You can finish this sentence for me. Eat this limp, cold, canned asparagus. Why? Because kids are starving. They're starving in China. They're starving in Africa, right? They just use guilt and shame to get you to eat your terrible vegetables, um, Sorry, Mom. Um, and then, but the other one, which is even more insidious, right? It's a song that we sang. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Why? Because, you know this song. The Father up above, He is looking down with love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. What is that supposed to teach us as children? Often we are raised in, in ways that lend us to live in guilt and shame. You cannot effectively lead from there. You cannot lead your family or a small group or a church with unresolved guilt and shame. And so Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Here's the thing. I think you should. I think that author was right. We should begin at the Sermon on the Mount. We need to ponder Jesus' wisdom and, and, and wrestle with what he says. But you must encounter Jesus in resurrection. It is the most important and powerful moment in the world. Because the resurrection in your life is the moment when Jesus speaks your name, when Jesus looks into your eyes, when Jesus calls you to new purpose. He calls you forgiven. He calls you to live in abundance. Keller says it this way, Jesus is not the dead founder of an ethical religion. He is a living Savior and you can know him. Mary comes in grief and sadness, so much welling up in her soul that she doesn't even recognize angels before her. And in one word, Jesus sets her free to be the first evangelist. Thomas is lost and confused if what he had paid into this this Lord, of what he had committed his life to was all just a mistake and a joke. And Jesus in one gesture sets him free to serve the world. And Peter is drowning in guilt and shame. Trying to figure out if the best thing he can do for the rest of his life is just go back to fishing. And in one conversation, Jesus sets him free and changes the world. On Ash Wednesday, the way we asked you to make the commitment to to engage in these virtuous practices was to take a little scoop of sand and, and put it in a jar and I was, I was looking at the jars after the, the practice was over, and we, man, we filled up the patience jar. Joy was pretty close, but we filled up that patience jar. That patience jar was almost overflowing. It almost spilled sand all the way around it. And I was talking to Natalie about that, and I said, I wonder if we, like, need to do, some, like, a sermon series on patience or something. Like, maybe this is supposed to tell us something. And, and, and Natalie had this profound reflection. She said, I don't think the problem is patience. I think the problem is mercy. She says, I think sometimes we try to hide being merciful, with being patient. And man, I've been chewing on that for weeks. But we choose these different colors of sand and we as a staff, we played with it and, and messed around with it. And, and here's something beautiful. And this is true about sand. This is true about paint. This is true about any sort of liquid texture. If, if you put those colors together, if you mix them all together, all the colors of the rainbow, and you put them in the same pot and you shake it up, you get the most beautiful, rich, creamy, mocha. It's the most beautiful color. It's the same color if you mixed all the colors of human melanin. It's this beautiful brown of the earth. But if you were to do it with light, instead of using paint. You used it with light, with filters. Like you took a prism and I, we have this prism in our house. It shines through from about like 4.30 to 5.15 through that, the peephole in our door and it shines this beautiful rainbow on the, the wall behind it. But if you were to reverse it and you were to shine it backwards, all the colors of the rainbow into the same spot, you don't get brown, you get white. Beautiful, shining white. So imagine with me for a minute that the embodiment that you did, where you put that virtue in your body and you practiced it week to week, it was driving the speed limit. It was gently loving others around us. Imagine that was the embodiment of the image-bearing likeness of Jesus. That in that moment, you bared both the color of humanity, that rich mocha brown, but also the color of Jesus' white light. It makes us human. It clothes us in brilliance. It looks like Jesus. There's all these medieval writers who talk about gazing at the cross, looking at the cross, and they were converted. And I was never able to figure that out. I was never able to understand that, how they could just look at the cross, they just see the cross and suddenly they become Christian. And so uh, I had this opportunity and I I went to Europe and I sat in those cathedrals where they sat and I looked at the crosses that they looked at. I, I went in and I sat on the pew and I watched it and I just looked at the cross and I was trying to figure out what happened. The problem was I was just looking at the cross the way that you see somebody down the road. But I needed to reflect on the cross the way that Peter looked at the tomb. It was not just seeing, it was gazing, contemplating. So look on the face of Jesus and wrestle with it. Try to figure it out. Dwell on it, let it transform you. Because one of the things that's going to happen in the quiet when you gaze at Jesus' face is there's going to come things that bubble up from inside you. And don't run away from that. Our temptation is to flee from anything that's painful or distracting. and We just want to find something else to do. But hang in that place. Because what's going to well up is deep sadness. That your life is disappointing and it's not the way you want it to turn out. But don't look away. And what's going to well up is is Guilt about what you've done or what you've said or the way that you've harmed others. And it's gonna be a lot easier for you to just do something else other than this and go on living your life, just make a little buck and you're gonna be okay, but don't do that. Gaze at the face of Jesus. What's gonna well up in that moment is a sense of purposelessness. What What have you done that's worth anything? And that could lead you to just wanting to walk away from the whole moment. The resurrection is not easy for you to engage. It is the fruit of faith, not the source. But don't look away, dwell on it. Let it transform you. Let it lift you from the pit of loss and despair. Let it give you new resolve. Our Easter confession is that we believe early one Sunday morning, just before dawn broke, the darkness of night, Jesus rose with power. Jesus canceled our debt. Jesus redeemed our sin. Jesus gave us victory over the powers, even death. Jesus set us free to live new lives and our singing will never end. For he who was no more is forevermore. And the church says, amen. Let's stand and sing.